Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Jim Dennis, a featured farmer here to expand on his urban farming journey. Jim was raised on a farm that had one foot in the past and one in the future. Leaving that place, he spent a long time in the cities and in the corporate world and eventually returned to his roots. Jim's business is to help people learn the ways of gardening and adapting to a sustainable lifestyle. Welcome to the show today, Jim. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here and it's kind of nice to see how far you've gone from when I took that class years ago from you when you first started. Yeah, chicken class in my backyard. Yeah, that was probably 15 years ago. I think so. Yeah, wow. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path that you took to get where you're at now? Sure. I'll talk a little bit about um, what I talk about a foot in the past and a foot in the future when yeah, I grew up. That's that's good. What's that yeah. about? It was a farm. I grew up on northern Michigan and we had an extended family, my grandfather and all the rest of us. My grandfather used no mechanical means, no chemicals, no fertilizers, wow. no tractors. Everything was done by horse. And all the amendments were old type. And he also practiced what we would probably call sustainable now, (laughs) using, you know, fence rows for erosion, wildlife, the woodlots. Oh, yeah. So I much preferred being with my grandfather than when my father would get on a tractor. Oh, right. Exactly. Wow. And that was, you know, like in the, when, when was that? What years were that? Oh, I was born in the mid-50s. So so. it was up until my grandfather farmed until he was in his 90s. Wow. Cool. All right, cool. So, and after that? After that, you know, when you become a young man, you, things look greener on the other side. So (laughs) I always wanted to leave. It was in northern Michigan, small town, rural. So Mm -hmm. I ended up taking off and spent a lot of my life in San Francisco, living in the city. Took some ways to work. Worked in the corporate world with American Express Company. And wow, that's something I didn't know about you. Yeah, the closest thing I had to Earth was I was on the fourth floor. I had a window box. Oh, what did you grow in the window box? Daisies. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right, cool. In San Francisco, you never have to water. You never have to replant. So. Oh, right. 
15 years of one flower box, one planting. <laughs> Closest I got to nature. Nice. All right, cool. But So that's uh, San Francisco to Phoenix. That's the... I got transferred down here into Phoenix. And a lot of times in life you go full circle. And when I got transferred here, I got intrigued with um, some of the old neighborhoods with the irrigated lots. Oh, yes. And what they could grow. The first few years I lived in condos. But I wanted to get back to it. And luckily we found a place in north central Phoenix, irrigated lot. Mm-hmm. Where I could have my dogs. And then my next door neighbor decided one time to get some chickens. Oh, really? Yeah. And that brought me back to when we had chickens uh-huh. growing up. And after a while, she decided she didn't want the chickens. And I had already become friends with them. So I adopted them and nice. kind of started my farm. I still have 15 chickens, two turkeys. One of the first... So Jim and I have known each other for a couple of decades probably yes, a long time a long time and um, one of the first memories that I have of interacting with you was this uh, business or project that you ran called rent a hen tell me about that I decided that a lot of people were interested in chickens but I had a concern that a lot of people didn't know the work involved with them right and the care of them that people would just kind of jump into it because it was kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing so I developed a business I called Rent a Hen, and I would get the little chicks and I would hand raise them, uh-huh. making sure that they were hens. Yep. And when they would be about four to five months old, I would rent them to people to kind of start. I would do it for 90 days. Uh huh. And I would help them, you know, establish their, um, their living quarters, how to take care of them. Uh huh. But I found it was, it was kind of difficult. First, with me, Giving up my... Did you get attached to them? Oh, yes. Very yeah. Much. <laughs> there you go. Heidi gets uber attached to yes, uh, the hens. very hand, much. So, and it yeah. was like, you know, took me... I would spend a lot of hours making sure they're well cared for. Right. Going over, checking on them and oh, things. Yes. And so financially, it was not a success at all, but it was more something I really loved. Uh-huh. But then I found, too, that a lot of people preferred just outright purchasing the hens. Mm-hmm. So instead of renting the hens, I began to sell small flocks of them and just basically be more of a consultant, helping uh-huh. people set up their oh, very good. set up their chicken areas. And if I didn't have the chickens, I would help them find them at the different places. Right. Around. Oh, perfect. So. Fantastic. So do you still do that? A Not little so bit. Much. I did some consulting on it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Right, My cool. 15 chickens, I think the youngest one is probably four. Oh, wow. At home. So so they're getting older. And then one time I decided I wanted to get in the turkey business by raising heritage turkey, the Narragansett, which uh-huh. is a really beautiful bird. It's the original bird from the New World that Christopher Columbus took back with him oh, to wow. Spain. Mm-hmm. And so the Spanish kept the Narragansett, brought it back to the U.S. in the 1700s. And by 1950, it was pretty much endangered. And so a few years ago, I decided I would get back into the turkey business. Mm-hmm. And... Was that for meat? Yes. Oh. <laughs> you should have seen the look on his face there. Yes. Yeah, no, I understand that. Then I, I found that, you know, as a, a kid growing up, we, you know, we raised our own meat. And I thought I could go back and do that again, but I couldn't. Yeah, it's hard. I, couldn't, so. I, I, I A few years ago, I raised about uh, two dozen meat chickens and four turkeys and... So, you know, I'm not a vegetarian, so I wanted to figure out that process. So now I know when 
Now I don't have to do that anymore. And now I'm willing to spend $25 on an organic chicken at the yes. farmer's market, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was my dream. I was going to, people People actually pay about $100 for a natural heritage breed turkey. Mm -hmm. And I had about 30 of them, much to the consternation of my neighborhood. Oh my gosh. <laughs> when you start out, the turkeys are really small and cute. Exactly. And they grow yep. very fast. And the Narragansett's a very intelligent bird. We uh -huh. think turkeys are stupid, but the heritage breeds are very, very intelligent. Mm -hmm. And at the age of about three months, they start wanting to develop their territories. Oh, wow. And so, luckily, I have very understanding neighbors. Neighbors. <laughs> there you go. That, take, that takes some work, though, all that. Oh, it, it does with the neighbors. I, I start out, I share eggs with my neighbors. Oh, perfect. Turkey eggs? Um, the chicken eggs. Oh, okay. Chicken eggs. Because Tur the turkey eggs are... They're huge. Huge. They're yeah. huge. And turkeys aren't real productive layers. Right. At all, so... Yeah. There was one time, though, I came home from work when I worked at the nursery late on a Sunday, and I got to my cul-de-sac, and it was shut down because my turkeys were doing a whole production up on top of my house, and all the neighbors had come out and pretty much filled the street. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Filming up with their kids, because the kids would call to the turkeys, and the turkey would, just would call back. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What, what kind of turkey is that? Narragansett. Narragansett? Narragansett. It's the original New World turkey. Turkeys are native to the New World. Uh-huh. And they thought, when uh, explorers first came, they thought, you know, they had arrived in India. Oh. And that's where peacocks had come through the country uh, of turkeys. So right. Uh -huh. They called the birds turkeys after the country of Turkey. Oh, wow. And actually, Columbus took the Narragansetts back, 12 Narragansetts back to Spain mm -hmm. for Queen Isabella. Oh, nice. And so the, the breed was um, kept pure. Got it. So. Cool. All right, good. So now fast forward to your most recent project. Tell me about that. A couple projects I'm doing right, actually probably three projects. In Definitely. farming, I'm really pushing a plant. The um, the edible hibiscus, uh, hibiscus septifera. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. You, so you came in and you handed us a bag of these. Yes, we'll have to right. take some pictures of these and post them for people to it's, see. A lot of people don't know about the hibiscus, but it's also called jamaica uh -huh. in the Mex in Mexico. It's a very important drink. It's a great drink. It's a natural hydrator, so it's used for field workers. Oh, we'll put a couple of the dried blossoms into a gallon of water in the morning before they go to the fields. Uh -huh. It's a natural hydrator. Oh, interesting. And so a lot of that developed, a lot of the Mexican, in Mexico, the farm workers use it, and we use it that way here, uh -huh. too, as a hydrator. It's also... So they make, essentially, it's a tea. It's a tea. You can make a concentrated tea. Red Zinger is a variety that the zing comes from the redness. Right because the hibiscus has a real tart flavor to it. Mm -hmm. The hibiscus frescus in the Mexican restaurants. Oh, uh-huh. You go to Starbucks and get a very berry hibiscus drink. That's this one? It's made of, of this one. And what I really like about it is it's very adapted to the high heat of summer oh. that Phoenix has. It uh -huh. thrives in 115, 120 degree heat. Wow. Full blazing sun. Moderate water user, it can be easily grown in areas where we have flood irrigation uh -huh. and actually can take low water. Your production cuts Goes down. Yeah. 
the leaves are edible, so it's one of the few greens we can grow in the Phoenix area in, in the, the summer, summer. Yes, that would be nutritious. We have a hard time cooking. I haven't quite developed a recipe for them. The Oriental people have will will cook it very well, but we do throw it into salads, and we'll use it in place of the herb sorrel. Because oh right, the leaf has a lemony yes. taste to it. Oh nice. It's one of those foods that nature gives us that I say is like a, a miracle food because uh -huh. all parts are edible. The roots are used for herbal medicines. Okay. The stems contain fiber which are made into a twine. Oh, nice. And the leaves are edible and of course the flowers are edible too. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you, you walked in, you handed us a bag and James is my uh, producer in here and he was, uh, I handed him a uh, one of these flowers and I right. said, here, try this. And he took a little bite of it and his face lit up and I said, do you want to hand it back? He said, no way, yeah. I want to keep this. So Next, they, they, they got a little tart little taste to them. In they there. do. Next time I'll bring you the candied ones. Oh my gosh, there you go. That's a new recipe I've got with them. We're very popular in Europe to candy and it's also, I forgot to mention too, a natural dye. Oh, I'm sure, because they're deep, in Europe, deep it's, red. It's a deep red dye, and Europe is used a lot for natural dye. And I found a the big thing is trying to find a market for it. Mm -hmm. But I have found a market with some of the local artisans who dye their own ah, wool. perfect. Who will spin their own wool and dye it. They use this as a natural red dye. Oh, cool. Wow. So this is one of your projects. So you're growing these out. Growing you always have out. seeds available at the market. Oh, I have seeds. It's a, We plant it in the warm season, so we plant it in the spring. Uh -huh. And I also do um, plant starts of the hibiscus. Yeah. Perfect. And a lot of people find it's a beautiful plant. Uh, they're just using it in their home gardens yeah. in the summertime. Because by fall, it's a, it's a plant that when I first saw it years ago, there was a plant at the extension office and everybody said, what is it? Ah. That kind of spectacular, and they said it's called homica. Oh, yes. So I got some seeds off that, and so I've had the same seed has been here in Phoenix probably for 10 years. Wow. 10 generations of yeah, plants. Yeah. But very productive in, in seeding, so I saved the oh, seeds. Very good. So, what's the importance behind doing this? So, talk to me about that. Part of it is the importance it's a food that's used culturally in our area uh -huh. and it's a food also it's a plant that's very adapted to growing in our area heavily used by some of the population you can buy it bulk in supermarkets but my issue with it is uh production is no longer in mexico it's in china Oh, wow. So they're growing it in China and shipping it here. Yes. When you go to buy a bulk in the stores, it's the country of origin now is China. Oh, interesting. And so I would like to bring the production back to the Southwest. Oh, now that's a cool idea. And the biggest issue with it is a very labor-intensive plant. So we're working on ways to figure out how can we do it much more efficient mm -hmm. so that we can lower the cost here. It was produced in the United States commercially in South Florida mm -hmm. during the from the thirties to the fifties. Oh wow. Uh-huh. Until the land cost got it. Got too went, high for yeah, it. Yeah, went too high for it. Well that's the cool thing about urban farming in urban areas. There's all kinds of spaces that can be used for stuff like that. Really can be. I do farming at a couple of different places. One is in South Phoenix with a group called Tiger Mountain. Mm -hmm. We have four acres that it's just on the um, south bank of the river, flood irrigated. Right. Mm -hmm. That's where I grow the hibiscus, and even a quarter acre there 
with the flood irrigation, full blazing sun, production is extremely heavy. Nice. And so I'm in thoughts, and I've had a couple brief conversations with another area, a nonprofit farm that's being developed in South Phoenix. With cool. A heavy Hispanic population. Right. That this is something that we could grow with them. Right. That they would like to use a note, how to uh, use it. And there's that education piece. Gotta love that. Yes, because they educate me also. Mm-hmm. One man showed me one time. He grew oh, up I in love an area. It when that happens. Yes, he grew up in an area of Mexico where hibiscus was commercially farmed. And he took a little knife and said, this is how you harvest it. Oh. Just a, a quick little right. cut around it. And so if we find the people that know how to harvest it, that we can incorporate their their skills into lowering the cost of production. Wow, cool. And I'm just really excited. It's a local product. Right. I make a syrup out of it. I get local honey from the local beekeepers. Yep, absolutely. And we make a syrup and we'd say that this is a product that... A syrup with the hibiscus. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, nice. People make jelly, syrups, different keys, but a syrup that I can say, you know, the entire ingredients in this jar are it's within Phoenix. the city limits of Phoenix. Phoenix. Wow. The fifth largest country in the nation. So there's a lot we can do with urban agriculture. Yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. Cool. And to kind of kind of think outside the box and start looking at plants that, you know, maybe we don't know a lot about or use a lot of, uh-huh. have been used here historically or by other cultures in the same type of climate we have. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, so that's project number one. You said a couple at least. So project number two, I... Yeah, during the spring, I started up a, a business called, I call it Farm Phoenix, uh-huh. where I, at farmer markets, I'll sell plants, seeds, organic soil amendments, and just try to answer, a lot of it ends, is answering questions. Yeah, from educating the Urban people. gardeners, what can I plant when? Mm-hmm. And I find that a lot of the people are used to the bigger box stores where they go in and the plant may not be <laughs> applicable to the time of planting in our season. Yeah. Phoenix is very unique. We're very reversed yeah. from the rest of the country. So a lot of it's education. I mm-hmm. worked in a, a plant nursery for a long time, and that's what I did there until it closed. So I kind of had an idea of like a little pop-up type of nursery where I would sell the plant starts that are in season with the amendments and the advice how to do it. And the big thing is also to give people referrals to the resources that are out in the community. Right. They'll be looking for something and I'll say, you know, Grow Well has a very good planting mix. Uh You can get it at a nursery just down the street here. It's a local product. Or go out to this nursery, ask for this person. They're an expert in that area Mm -hmm. and they'll be glad to help you. To bring all the local resources together to give to people. Yeah, you're a lot about local, aren't you? Very much. Yeah, why why is that important? Kind of back to when I grew up, Mm -hmm. that economy was a very localized economy where people knew each other. A lot of trading went on. The banks were local. The stores were local. Everybody Uh knew each other, Mm -hmm. which I feel was a much more sustainable way of life than what we have now with them. Yeah. Major corporations, the concentration of the business in just a few. Mm-hmm. Now, good. 
Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about local. That is for sure. So uh, one thing that you're also doing that not a lot of the people that we interview are doing is you're, you're monetizing some of this. Um, you're actually using this for your living. How does What does that look like and how do you do that? <laughs> well, that can be difficult. Farming is not profitable. Right now I'm taking a, a series of classes through the University of Arizona designed to make us think more business mm -hmm. Models Perfect. for small farmers. Yep, exactly. Growing. Uh huh. And I make a small profit on it, but I'm not one in the business to make a lot of money. I don't mm -hmm. have to make a lot of money. Right. My my joy is more from what I'm doing, and then helping other people maybe get to the point where they can start monetizing yeah. and making some money. Cool. So right. you sell plant starts. So plant starts, seeds, seeds, soil amendments, a few hard goods like right now, frost cloth, people need oh, frost cloth. Oh yeah, it and got cold all of a sudden. My yeah. business model on that is I keep my prices fairly low uh -huh. because it can be pretty expensive for people when they start looking at backyard gardening to buy some of the plants. I see the same plant, I can get a locally grown plant and sell it for about half of what big box stores sell plants for that mm -hmm. aren't locally grown right and so that is my aim on that is to keep it affordable so that people not only learn to do some of their own backyard gardening raise some of their own food but realize that they can do it it's not going to cost them an arm and a leg exactly perfect and i want to also talk about the uptown phoenix growers market and what that is because that's a really cool concept it's a Great concept. Uptown Farmers Market at the corner of Bethany and Home Road and Central Avenue. That's it's it. About that's in Phoenix. Old, in Phoenix. It's about a, a year old and it's a great farmers market. It really focuses on carrying a lot of vendor, having a lot of vendors that do sell fresh produce mm -hmm. and good foods. That's their main focus. Again, local. All local. Yeah. This fall, we started another a segment of that market we call the Uptown Growers Market, dedicated to things that garden-related plants, mm -hmm. soil amendments, so that we would have more growers in selling these goods, and we could concentrate it in an area so that people could find different things. Got it. Sometimes... So I don't carry certain plants mm -hmm. and the seeds I carry are the seeds that I farm with. And so other growers that are with me there will have that plant. Got it. So it's, it's kind of like a pop-up nursery on a, on a weekend at a farmer's market. Yes. It's a nice. style nursery. Nice. You can get different plant starts. You can get flowers. You can talk to us about different plants. Uh -huh. Maybe instead of if you're not growing your own food, maybe the pollinator plants. Mm -hmm. The monarch butterfly plants. Oh, yes, 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 exactly. Besides getting edible foods and seeds. Yeah, perfect. So, so I really got kind of a one-stop area with a much bigger selection. Perfect. I want to really encourage everybody out there listening, um, you know, connect with your farmer's markets and see if you can start your own grower's market in your area out there. It's It's been quite a success. Um, I, there was also another one here in, in Phoenix a couple of years ago, and, and they had very good success with that as well. So it re, it's really bringing the plants and seeds and garden nursery idea to the farmer's market. 
And besides that too, it really, you talked about the local economy. Yeah. Is that the plant starts that I sell are all grown locally. Yeah. They're grown here in Phoenix. Nice. And now I'm able to say, okay, this is a success. There's a, a couple other people that have approached me saying, hey, we can grow some of the plants mm -hmm. too for you. Perfect. Naturally grown plants. Nice. And that provides a revenue stream to them also. Exactly. So Thanks. we're keeping, I can show person a plant and I'll tell them the plant never left the city limits. Nice. Spent its entire life here. Gotta love that. In the Gotta fifth largest that. city in the nation. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna trip a little over here and I'm gonna say, what drives you? Like, what's your big why? Why do you do this? I love people. Yeah? Probably more than plants. I, <laughs> I love, I love people. Uh -huh. And my drive is I get a real satisfaction of seeing that other person succeed. Mm -hmm. We've done that at different gardens and things, helping mm -hmm. people. And that way I can help them. They get successful. Then I can step back and it's all theirs. Yeah. I think I kind of go by a, a quote. One of my favorite authors, Joseph Campbell, uh -huh. wrote The Hero's Journey. Mm -hmm. Always has a quote that he says, follow your bliss. And if you follow your bliss, the doors will open up mm. where there were walls. And if I find people, and I've actually found people that, you know, they're in, they're in a world that they're not happy with and they start getting in the gardening world. Mm -hmm. And I can encourage, I can coach them and see them become successful. And that's what really drives me. I can say, hey, look, nice. at, this, look at this guy that everybody is really he's so successful uh -huh. and to think I had a little part of that yeah and nice when they, when they come back and say hey do you remember when we first met and I said yeah we worked out in an okra field uh-huh you're interested <laughs> 110 nice. I took an okra field started planting okra and wow and you made it yeah so. nice so I'm all about education and I'm curious is there one book out there that has inspired you that is um, made a difference for you, has created your life differently. For me, it's the book Ishmael. And mm -hmm. I always like to know what book that is for for y'all. It's, uh, it's actually, it was a series of books when I was a little kid. It was written by a, a naturalist in New England in the 1800s. Oh, wow. Thornton Burgess Wilder. Uh -huh. It's kind of a Thoreau type. Oh, interesting. Uh -huh. And he wrote about nature and he gave these human qualities to the plants and the animals, whether they're trees or uh -huh. your crops or a bird. And it's almost a spiritual thing. It never brought in God, but who was the, the creator was the wind. Oh, nice. And it was just a, he was a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And he told these stories to children in the Northeast, the late mm -hmm. 1800s. And so they wrote down his stories. And I read them as a little kid, and a lot of the things he talked about were there with me. Oh, oh yes. And there's one where he talked about the witch hazel shrub. Oh. It's native to the areas where I grew up in. And he tells the story about the shrub and gives it these almost human qualities like a soul. And so you know all about the witch hazel because he told you a story about it. And why the witch hazel flowers in the autumn. Uh-huh. Everybody else flowers in the spring. Spring, right. But it was a story about, almost like we could relate to like bullying. 
Mm -hmm. The witch hazel didn't flower and everybody else flowered and laughed and said you're ugly and and then in the fall when everybody else is losing their leaves the witch hazel blossoms. Wow. And so you learn a lot about just, you know, you look at a plant and you remember all the stories this guy told you about this plant or this animal. Uh huh. And still, I still have those in me. Yeah. yeah. So there was a series of books. It was a series of books. Nice. He talked right, about, cool. you know, the different plants, all the animals. Perfect. We'll, we'll dig that up and, uh, and put it on the show notes page. I actually so, dug it up a couple of years ago. It's on my Kindle. Oh, oh, it, oh very good. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? There's a lot of words that come to mind. I think be patient, do what you love doing, and just get out there. Get your hands dirty. Mm -hmm. Get out in the air. Get out in the sun. I think that's a, there's a lot of studies now showing a lot of health benefits besides just exercise, but just being out there. And I think that's important in our daily lives because we're indoors way too much. Way too much. With the high stress levels. Yeah. And if you just get out there, enjoy, look at the plants, and even think of some of the stories about what that plant has done what I love doing when I sell a plant sometimes I talk too much but when I sell them a plant I tell them you know what they what even the ancient peoples uh -huh. ascribe to that plant so when they have that plant and they go pick it or something they get in touch with their past again wow wow thank you for that thank you for that so thank you so much for oh, joining us on the show today enjoy the hibiscus oh yeah yeah we'll take some pictures of the pictures of those <laughs> So, uh, Jim, what's the best way that our listeners can get a hold of you? Usually by email. Okay. My business is called Farm Phoenix, all one word. So mm -hmm. the website is farmphoenix.com. Perfect. Easiest way to get a hold of me is email jim at farmphoenix.com. Very good. Well, that's all for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's 
denalicanning.com forward slash free.